You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me again, Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Hi, Paul. Um, you know, next week, I think you're not going to be my guest. I'm hoping not. Really? You're yeah. You're going to get bumped? You might get special bumped guest? next week. Yeah, special guest. Yeah, I'm mm. hoping to have next week, uh, for all of our listeners, um, one of our most popular guests back. Oh, Eric McGracken. Oh, yeah, he was a popular guest and a great guy. He's a great guy. He's wonderful. Um, he should be on this podcast all the time, but he's, he's so a super lawyer. He should busy be being a super lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I'm going to have him on to talk about our first topic today from a more in depth legal perspective. I C B C E E perspective than my perspective? Than your perspective, mm-hmm. yes. But I thought since it's timely, since the judgment was just released uh, today, the day of our recording, it would be prudent for us to talk about this massive ruling from Chief Justice Hinkson in the BC Supreme Court on ICBC's limits on experts. I'm a bit of a fan of Chief Justice Hinkson. I gotta say I am too. And, you know, uh, there are lots of very traditional conservative things about him but he's very good on the law and fairness and what's just and that's what you want in a judge and what you want in a chief justice well it's kind of the sort of more traditional thing that i experienced when i first became a lawyer and it doesn't feel it feels like it's changed over two decades of doing this um he feels a little bit more old school in that respect Mm -hmm. um he's uh out to protect the little guy. Yeah. Well, this case... And, he, um, and he's not big into government overreach. <laughs> well, who is? Who likes the government in, in their business? Oh, I mean, lots of people, lots of judges seem to be just fine with... Government overreach? <laughs> government overreach. Yeah, I'm not. Um, and that's De- why defer, I'll never be a judge. Defer to the legislative assembly. Because you have to get the government to appoint you first. <laughs> We, we don't have to worry about that, Kyla. You and I will never be judges. No. No, I'm, I'm like probably blacklisted. There's a list of people who can't be judges, and my name's near the top. And I'm sure mine is, too. Has in, been for a long time, but I in think any probably event. because it's Doroshenko and not Smith. So this was a challenge that was brought, interestingly, in part by a guy named Mr. Crowder, and in part by the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia. Well, they, they set it up to test the law. Yes. And so they they were both parties, though, because TLABC successfully before um, got standing to challenge court fees. So the fees that you have to pay to have a hearing in court. Um, and they were successful in getting standing and took their challenge all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and won, found court fees as unconstitutional. And now they are um, acting again to some extent as a litigant in this case. So that was interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So go yeah. on. So um, they, along with Mr. Crowder, uh, challenged a rule that David E. B. only very recently brought in. 
And that rule said that if you want to have an expert in your trial for your damages for your personal injury motor vehicle case, you can have one as long as your claim is up to $100,000. But you can only have one. And for claims above that, you can have three, but you can't have more than three. The way that this was structured was it was a rule that was imposed on BC Supreme Court, so imposed on the Superior Court as a court rule. Yeah, it was a unilateral rule change, which is really unheard of. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't know how these rules necessarily came about until I started reading this decision today. Um, all of these court rules, I know. And um, you know, obviously the courts are very protective about their domain. Um, and uh, the uh, decision came out and that was really ultimately where it was resolved was the court, the court has their domain over these rules and the government doesn't. Yeah, well the court has, as a constitutional principle, courts have the right to control their process. So the way that things unfold in courts is, at the end of the day, up to the discretion of the judge and the court. Yeah, and I mean, if we have independent courts, that's what we have. I mean, that that's is the idea. Yeah. yeah. So the media coverage but, around... Uh, but I mean, it, it, it is somewhat ridiculous in these cases, the battle of experts and trying to sort it out and how many experts do you have to get. I mean, I can understand the desire to put a limit on it. I'm not knocking David Eby for wanting to put a limit on it. I just don't think that it's something they can do. Yeah, but it would be easy to put a cap on it and say, look, this many experts, except if you get leave of the court to have more. Well, they had that though. There but, was, you could get leave of the court for more. But it was too, shoot, bless me. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, it You're was already blessed, Kyle. Thank you. Um, it was already it just to be in your presence, right? No. <laughs> um, no, but it was too high a like too high a standard that people had to meet. That's fine. I mean, I didn't get that far in, into the decision. I read the first twenty paragraphs or something, and then I skipped to the end because I started to get bored. I think the court could easily cap on its on its own motion the number of experts you can have, and you you saw judges before this doing that that they would say that's enough. I don't need you to call this expert. I've heard from this, you know. This person, this person, and this person already. I don't need another one. Yeah, and there's rules about, you know, duplicating the evidence of of other experts. But I really, what I really want to talk to you about, because neither of us are personal injury lawyers, and that's where Eric's expertise I, I've is. I've never been, and I don't want to be one. No, no. I, I leave that to the geniuses like Eric. Who deal with that. Yeah. Exactly. We may be the lowly drunk driving lawyers that can be... The lowly traffic ticket lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> hated by some and others and others yet. Yeah. Um, no, Looked but I... Looked down upon by our profession. I wanted to talk to you about the media coverage about this judgment today because I thought it was very interesting. Two things. First of all... Trial Lawyers Association of BC, their strategy was to put their president on all of the interviews and, and radio stations, and I'm a member <clears> of <throat> trial lawyers, so are you, um, to say, you know, the consistent message from TLABC. 
Well, they've wanted to have a consistent message all the time, all the way through this. They've wanted lawyers to not speak up. There's no, you know, we're not certainly not muzzled, but there's been sort of an indication that they'd prefer to have one or two point people on this, and um, so there's not too much of a diversity of confusing statements out there. I don't like that, uh, but this is not my area of practice, so I wasn't really overly concerned about it but the um yeah I so gave they, lots of interviews about stuff I gave interviews about it too I wasn't you know going to be muzzled as I say no. um and uh but again I mean there's times that that um lawyers contradicting other lawyers when it's just a difference of opinion on how something is to be understood uh is not very useful but in any event um and yeah sometimes so it's very useful to understand multiple sides of an issue. Absolutely. Sometimes it's very useful. Sometimes people only hear the one side of the issue and that's a problem too. So I understand why they did that. I mean, it was a deliberate um, attempt to control the story. I don't agree with it. I didn't agree with it. Um, I have spoken out about it a couple of times. Um, and I've mentioned that, that this was underway. I get it, but I didn't necessarily agree with it. But you gave interviews about this expert restriction when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. In I have event, opinions. I'm going to express them. I want to get back to the uh, the point man that they put out there. and. Yes, because what was really interesting was, and I think this is, you know, part of a problematic strategy of, of having one person give the, you know, give all the interviews on behalf of, of all personal injury lawyers and British Columbia ostensibly, is there was a very limited narrative presented by TLABC, whereas the government had this opportunity to tell all sorts of different narratives. They had, on the one hand, you know, David Eby saying, you know, I'm hearing from all these people that have spent a couple hundred thousand dollars to to um, recover only slightly more than that or, or less than that even. The only so, winners here are the experts. And... Exactly, exactly. And then you have ICBC coming out and saying, this is going to cost us 400,000 or 400 uh, million dollars and we've done the math and there's a rampant abuse of the use of experts. And you get all from one side as a collective whole, these different points parroted and it kind of drowns out the message that's coming from one person. Oh, for sure. And part of the other problem is the media aren't interested in interviewing the same guy uh, who was just interviewed on one radio station. They don't want necessarily him to be a half an hour later on the next radio station mm -hmm. because he's just going to say the same thing and it's not news. And, you know, people do flip around. They're not going to, you know, watch Global and then go over to CTV to watch the same guy say the same thing. Um, you know, there's a, there's value to having a few people out there pushing it. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I have been on news stories many times where, um, you know, CTV phones you and they want to interview you, but they don't want to interview you necessarily if Global's interviewing you on the same thing. Um, so this is, I, I mean, again, I thought it was a, uh, not the best strategy. I didn't agree with their strategy, um, all along as this has gone through, not just this, the other limits that have been placed on the litigation, but. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's interesting. I'm, you know, the, the headlines, the way the headlines are being published now shows that the strategy taken by the government has been more effective. Because if you look at the headlines about this case today, it isn't, you know, BC Supreme Court strikes down court rule, calling it unfair and unconstitutional. 
the headlines are BC Supreme Court strikes down court rule limiting experts, exposing ICBC to greater costs, perpetuating the dumpster fire, uh, could cost up to $400 million, making your rates more expensive. Like, ICBC has been successful in painting this, this, in spinning this, so that, that the narrative that's being told is not that these lawyers are heroes of, of the people who have been injured and want a fair you know, opportunity to negotiate with ICBC, a fair hearing in Supreme Court, the opportunity to get put in all of the evidence before the judge about the extent of their injuries. And remember, if you're in a car accident, you could break your hand, you could break your foot, and you could break your noggin. And then you might need an expert to talk about your concussion. You might need an expert to talk about your injury to your hand. And, you know, you're a concert pianist. And you might need an orthopedic surgeon to talk about the injury to your foot. You might need three experts because you have three different injuries that came from the same accident. And you can't have one doctor talk about all of them. Absolutely. And that's that would be a more valuable point to have made. Um, and I just don't think that the trial lawyers came out and made it in the way that they Which, should have. You know, no offense, but like that was the point I made in the initial interviews that I gave when this law was first introduced about how it didn't make a lot of sense because you could have multiple different injuries. You can have a traumatic brain injury is completely different than having a spine injury. And the impacts of that are, are going to be different going along. And the rehab rehabilitative aspect of it can require a different expert. Sure, then. you need a physiotherapist to talk about that versus, you know, you need an economist to talk about your long-term financial prospects. Absolutely. All... A psychiatrist or a psychologist about the, the effects that it will have on you to be going through this. Or the effects that it'll have on you to just get behind the wheel of a car again. We see that a lot in these types of cases. People have a fear of driving. I have a friend um, whose name I won't use, but you know who I'm talking about. Uh, she was in a car accident years and years ago, and she is terrified of driving over bridges and in tunnels. And she lives in Surrey, so don't see her very often. <laughs> Unless I'm driving out there, she's not driving to see me. Yeah, well, that might be useful for you, depending on how well you get along. Um, the, uh, the joke. Yeah. yeah giving okay. me the stink eye like that. <laughs> I don't know if she listens to my podcast. Uh, she might like, she might like my joke. Anyway. Um, no, but I, I really, like, I feel that the Trial Lawyers Association made an error in just having one person, one narrative, and it comes back to this thing about lawyers advocating um you know we're pretty good at advocating for our clients um it somehow seems to be more difficult when we feel that we have our own um uh, our, our own steel in the fire um mm -hmm. you know if it if there's a, a bit of it i mean lawyers need to earn a living doing this um we uh prosecute these cases to try and get our clients the best settlement profit possible um, that's appropriate and just in law and you know we push it but we get paid out of it um, you know lawyers who are doing this push those things to get paid out of it so they have an interest in the end in getting the best settlement they can for their client and unfortunately I think because they um, you know we we all want to be when we're in court you know we're lovely and polite and we're probably a little bit reserved and often you know lawyers go to testify and they're so reserved because they are accustomed to being lawyers in court. Um, 
And then when they're out in the media, uh, it's a different thing. You have to be pushier when you're out in the media. And other lawyers makes them uncomfortable sometimes when they see you as a lawyer out in the media pushing a narrative. And it's hard as a, as a lawyer to step out and be compelling in the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I also think nobody has said something in all of this discussion about the lawyers are doing this to make so much money and ambulance chasers and greedy lawyers and blah, blah, blah. Nobody has said in any of these discussions that the lawyers' fees that they can get in these cases are capped. They're fixed, yeah. They're fixed. You can't get more than 33 and a third percent. So it's not like the lawyers have some gigantic payday and then they're taking, you know, 80% of a million dollar award and walking away with $800,000. They're taking, to get that million dollar reward, you might have, you know, two years worth of work that you put into the file. Um, Paid all, all your year. staff in the office, Paid kept it all staff. going, financed the thing as it was going along. Thousands sometimes, of pages of Sometimes paper. you've, you've, um, you've been borrowing money and sometimes mm-hmm. you're helping your client out to survive during this time so that they don't have to settle early and take a crappy settlement. I and, just ta- and you're pushing that thing for years, I just ta- paying your rent and everything, and then you yeah. finally settle it. You get your $330,000, settle two of those a year, and maybe you can pay everybody's salary yeah. and pay the rent. And they don't get a ton of them. I mean, there's some personal injury case lawyers who get a number of them at smaller amounts, but most of them are smaller files than that, much, much smaller files than mm-hmm. that. Um, and you still have to do a ton of work. Yeah. I mean, even my case, which I honestly thought was relatively, like, not that complicated. You know, three car accidents, not my fault. Back injury, brain injury, um, you know, other minor stuff like some whiplash that I went to physio for. Um, And... And still, even that, had to go get an MRI, had to get, you know, physio, had to do all of these things, all these expenses that I paid out of my own pocket, because ICBC wasn't giving anything, Um, you know, but I thankfully had money that that I could pay for those expenses. Not everybody can afford $125 a week for physio. That's food off the family's table, and a lawyer might advance that. Because it's going to ultimately come back in the settlement and then they can charge it as, as a disbursement. They're complex files too. They're often very oh, complex. Yeah. And as a lawyer, they're a stressful thing because you've got ICBC making this offer. You know that this offer is really substandard. Yeah. You have to take it to your client because you've got to bring every offer to your client. There's the, you know, it's almost sometimes like it's designed to shake the confidence you have between your client and the lawyer. Well, it is because they make these ridiculously low offers, much less than you would get if you went to trial. And they know that. And they file these pleadings that are essentially like a, like a form of gaslighting. They will, in cases where you're like a driver proceeding down the road with the right of way and somebody runs a stop sign and T-bones you, they will in their pleadings routinely deny that there was a stop sign. When everybody knows there was a fucking stop sign. I remember like, get reading. On I remember. Earth. I remember reading the pleadings in your case. Yeah, it was uh, gaslighting. Your lawyer, went and, your lawyer went and had some struck because they were, 
Um, Gaslighting. It was, yeah, it was awful, actually. Yeah. As you started to describe that before you got further too far, I thought you were exaggerating. I thought, oh, Kyla, you're going a little bit too far here. No. And then now, God, I remember. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, they denied there was a stop sign in one of my cases. Yeah, didn't they allege that you were drunk? Yeah, they alleged that I was drunk and on my cell phone. It's like 8 o'clock in the morning and I'm on my way to court. I'm no. definitely not drunk. You you did drink back then, but you were like the world's lightest drinker. And it was like a Tuesday and you used to have two drinks a week. Yeah. And I think it had been like two days since I had a drink, oh. at least. Um, I even know what I drank the two days before. It was like one glass of um, that, not the grower's cider, but the nasty orange stuff, California cooler. <laughs> Whatever. It was, that was rude. That was really rude. It was rude. And it was, they got it struck because it was accusing me, a lawyer who practices primarily in the area of impaired driving, of committing a criminal offense, more specifically the criminal offense that I make the majority of my career defending. So it was like completely vexatious. Yeah, I don't think the court cares about vexatious anymore. But this is what ICBC <laughs> does. Like, plaintiffs don't allege these types of vexatious things when they say, you know, oh, I hurt my wrist or I suffer headaches. And then ICBC says, we'll prove you suffer headaches. You know, meanwhile, they're like, but there was no stop sign and uh, you were drunk and you were on your cell phone and it was all your fault. Yep. Okay, so... I can defend ICBC on a lot of things that they do, but uh, there's plenty of bad stories of bad experiences, and I never like the idea of restricting the experts, but I'm, I'm not in excited. I'm not excited about the court thinking that it is like can make whatever rules it wants and nobody else can make rules about the court. I am excited about that. I think the court knows what the court needs best. I think the court should be in discussions with the government and the attorney general, and the court should but they respect, kind of are. I think the court should respect the democratic will of the people as expressed by the government. But they kind of are with things like a rules committee. But when you have an AG who bypasses that... Yeah, I mean... Don't ask me to. I I I, no, legal, I find the... I find I find the courts a bit of an arrogant exercise as a human being, and I look at the various different ways we could structure the courts, and I don't. I I think there's there's better ways. I think we're just stuck with this because this is what we've got. Okay. Well, speaking of arrogant exercises, I'm going to completely derail our conversation here, and switch to another topic, which was the arrogant exercise of Parliament when uh, they made changes in Bill C-46, which we've talked about a lot, um, to eliminate something called a curative discharge and replace it with something that looks like a curative discharge, but isn't. Okay, so we have to back up. Before the law, drunk driving law was changed by Jody Wilson-Raybould um, and came into effect December 18th 2018 by the way people thanks for re-electing her yeah well i thought that she would be re-elected mm -hmm. there's reasons i suspected that she would be re-elected she comes across as a person of moral certainty um, people like that and she didn't really express any 
opinion on anything. So people Except could just... Except that drunk drivers are bad. Well, yeah. So people could just sort of assume that she has the same moral certainty they do. So Liars are bad. Drunk not, drivers are bad. Not saying anything is probably a, an effective strategy for her. And I think that's, you know, Justin Trudeau did a lot of the same thing. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of moral certainty. Do I have a future in politics? Um, I don't know that she has moral certainty the way that you have moral certainty, the way that I have moral certainty. It's all very different. It's the perception of moral certainty was the right. issue. Um, but um, Okay, so back, back before to, she changed the uh, law. Before she changed the law, in provinces other than B.C., including Alberta, you could get a discharge on a drinking driving uh, charge. So if you were charged with a impaired or overweight or even a refusal to provide a sample, if you met certain circumstances, you could apply to court upon your finding a fact of guilt uh, for a conditional discharge. And the conditions, it was a curative discharge, yep. um, and the uh, conditions at the end, when fulfilled, you would not have a criminal record. And there was a number of things you could do. You can get an interlock and all these things. But the strange thing about it is it didn't apply across Canada. So it had to, uh, in order for it to become, uh, by operation of law in each province, the province had to implement legislation to make it happen. And BC never did it. And we waited and waited, hoping that we could one day challenge the fact that BC didn't do it as a, being a violation of the charter, a mobility rights thing. You could wave your file to Alberta so... and get a discharge. If you're from BC and you get a charge in Alberta, you can't wave it to BC to get a discharge. I mean, there's so many problems with it. We couldn't wait to do it. But we never got any clients convicted because no. we succeeded in... Too many cases. Way too many impaired driving cases. Mm -hmm. Not too many, but I mean, you know, <laughs> almost every one. So uh, we never got a chance to fight it. And then Jody Wilson changed the law and she got rid of that and created something else in yes. C46. Which... So it's essentially the same thing. You still have to show that you're an alcoholic who needs treatment. You still have to participate in all the treatment and counseling and agree to install an interlock in your car. And you can defer your sentencing until you've completed all these things. And then at the end, having done all that, dealt with your alcohol addiction, dealt with the public safety component, satisfactorily put an interlock in your car and reduced your driving prohibition period, you earn yourself a shiny new criminal record. Is there anything else though? Do you still pay the fine? Do you still yeah. have? So what, what's the, what, why not you just... cut down the period of your driving prohibition. So that's So you it. can get an interlock. Disqualification. And yeah. you drive with the, it's called a prohibition now that they changed the language oh, okay. in the code. Yep. Oh yeah, they did. I saw yep. that. Um, so you cut down the period of your driving prohibition. So now instead of getting a year, you can start it after three, uh, you can start the interlock after three months, or you can start it uh, immediately in certain circumstances. Um, but again, still doesn't apply in BC or Ontario, only the provinces that have enacted it um, by their own regulation. So you still doesn't help any of our clients here. But it, in the end, what what's the point? Well, you not, get a criminal it's, record. It's not different enough now no. from from what we had in the provinces that had enacted it that we could probably that we could mount a charter challenge on that basis. I mean, if you're going to win your charter challenge on the basis of the inability to drive without an interlock, you may as well just challenge the mandatory minimum for impaired driving, which includes the one-year driving prohibition anyway, arguing, as has been successfully done in Yukon, that it's unconstitutional because it 
creates a form of house arrest. No, I think that argument can still be made for that on the mandatory minimum for impaired driving period, but I don't think this opens up, this closes the door in oh, many respects yeah. to the argument that we could have made before. Yeah, I'm saying there's no point that, in making the argument we could have made no. before because you may as well just go the one step further at that point. But I think the challenge to the mandatory minimums is just waiting to happen there on impaired driving cases. You just need the right case to, oh, to look, do it. Courts right now across the country appear to be in love with the idea of striking down mandatory minimums and going back to our original uh, beginning discussion, controlling their own process and giving judges the discretion to decide how things are going to unfold. It just seems so inconsistent to me in so many respects. Well... They get on a trend for something and striking down mandatory minimums left, right, and center. Um, they get they're on cruel. Various different trends. Well, sometimes, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. I mean, um, sometimes it's just the will of the people of the country who elected the government and every time say we want to throw the book at people. The shitty problem with the mandatory minimum challenge in BC, though, is you challenge the mandatory minimum it gets struck down as cruel and unusual punishment, you're still left with Section 99 of the Motor Vehicle Act that still prohibits you for a year. So you'd actually have to challenge both 250, uh, uh, not 250, whatever, the new the new section. I'm Three, back in the past. 320.1, so. yeah. whatever. Yeah, the, the new section with the one-year prohibition, and then also the Motor Vehicle Act. But a provincial court judge can't rule on the constitutionality of a provision of the Motor Vehicle Act. Why not? Because it's not engaged. It's not in their jurisdiction. It has to happen in BC Supreme Court. Really? Yeah. No. Yeah. Look, the provincial court judge is deciding the impaired driving issue. They're, they're, they're never deciding that the law is unconstitutional. They're just no. deciding they're that they can't. To apply they're refusing it. to apply but it. The judge it doesn't apply Section 99. Section 99 operates oh, shit. by yeah, law. Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. So you you're have right. to challenge Section 99 in a separate challenge, like at a petition to the court. You're right. Yes, I'm always right. I hadn't thought about that. Tell Fuck. the judges <laughs> I'm always right. <laughs> I, know you're, I know you're always right, Kyla. I get it. Um, the, um, I want to digress, but I want to stick with this for a second. I, you know, getting back to this Alberta decision. So there's a decision from Alberta that says the, uh, judge is required to take into consideration the administrative driving prohibition that the person got at the beginning when they sentence a person later on yes. when they're convicted of impaired driving. So say you're going to get a one-year minimum sentence for impaired driving. You served three years for an administrative driving prohibition. Um, the judge can take three into months. account, three months rather, for an administrative driving prohibition. The judge can take into account those three months. If you've been prohibited for three years then, waiting for your impaired trial, you've got a Jordan argument. Yeah, well, that was what you used to have in Alberta. Um, <laughs> but the, until that was struck down. But the... Um, no, the judge said they that um, your driving prohibition ultimately ordered by the court as your sentence is can be reduced mm -hmm. to take into account. And I think that was a, a Court of Queen's Bench decision. It was a Court of Queen's Bench decision. And it hasn't been applied in B.C. to my knowledge. It has but, not been applied in B.C. to But your partially knowledge. because maybe the point that you're just making, which is that you would also have to then go run into B.C. Supreme Court and seek an order... Um, modifying the driving prohibition pursuant to section 99 as a violation of the charter. 
I think it also has to do with the structure of Alberta's legislation, which hinges more closely on the fact that the person's been charged with the impaired driving offense, as opposed to BC's legislation, which creates the ADP as a standalone that operates regardless of whether or not there's a criminal charge, although traditionally you see the criminal charge and the ADP going hand in hand. Well, they're all part of the criminal investigation. The the breath samples are taken pursuant sure. to a criminal investigation. It's pursuant to a criminal demand. The person's given a court appearance date. So Sometimes. The vast majority of the time, the person is given an appearance date to court. Um, so I don't I, I, know. I, I mean, I, I see your point, but I don't think that negates the argument. I think no, you can I, still make the argument. I think so, too. And all of it flows to a large extent from a Supreme Court of Canada decision from a couple of years ago where um, the accused had been on a bail condition not to drive for like three years while his cases were all going on and he got like a 10-year sentence or 10-year driving prohibition and like his jail sentence and he was appealing his sentence and the Supreme Court of Canada found that the jail term was fine. It was a death. Um, the jail term, there was no problem with it, but the sentence was varied to the extent that because he'd been on this bail condition not to drive, his driving prohibition ordered by the court needed to be reduced to take into account the amount of time he'd spent prohibited from driving on bail. That essentially, you get the same pre-trial credit for your driving your prohibition, driving prohibition as you do for, And as why you wouldn't do. you? And, well, exactly. Why wouldn't you? That makes perfect sense. It's your sentence is going to include a driving prohibition. It's all rationally connected to the offense for which you're being charged and the punishment that you're going to receive. It's all the same arising out of the same incident. Even if it's not a formal bail condition, it's still a consequence that you suffered as a result of the, the investigation and the charge, and it should be subtracted from the time. You know, I used to get quite regularly, I haven't seen it probably in 15 years, but I used to get people all the time who were released on conditions by the police officer not to drive. Yeah, I had one. In impaired driving cases, they'd just be released on conditions. You're not to be found in the driver's seat of a motor vehicle. Yeah, I had one recently where that was the that was the case and it took about a year for the case to be resolved. Um, and the entire time in the back of my mind, I was like, well, this person is going to have no driving prohibition at the end because I'm going to rely on the Supreme Court of Canada's judgment. Um, unfortunately, didn't get the chance to argue that because... It all fell apart after all a year. So the fell poor, apart poor and they weren't convicted. Suffered, poor schmuck suffered for a year. Yeah, he did. But he didn't get a criminal record. Hmm. So. Well, you win some and you win some other aspects of some. I yeah. guess. Speaking of winning, Kyla, I can tell you the um, I've learned that you have a fan club out there, although it's not really what? an organized fan club. Yeah, somebody um, sent me a tweet today uh, telling me they saw you in a restaurant and they didn't want to come up to you and talk to you. They follow you on Twitter, didn't want to come up to you and talk to you. It just would be awkward at the time, but they're a bit of a fan. And I get these people who are always telling me that they're, uh, you know, your fan and that they're joking about your fan club, the Kyla Lee fan club. And I think it's hilarious. You 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 have you have celebrity status. I mean, like, 
maybe like a z-list celebrity <laughs> like the lowest rung because you know somebody saw me on twitter once no i mean there's a lots of people who follow you and follow you on twitter and follow all the things that you're doing and and can see how much you do and how hard you work i gotta stop um, so location why not? tagging on my personal account yeah don't do that the um don't know location tag no i mean there's the, the there are Thousands of people in British Columbia who know who you are because of your many, many, many television appearances and your uh, your caustic wit. Uh, and that was a joke. Yeah, it's like not that what caustic, caustic um, wit. The um, so it's uh, it's quite funny. I'm I'm sitting here with a celebrity. Oh well, a celeb. Oh, thanks. And I'm a member of your fan club. I'm I'm your number one sufficiently fan. Sufficiently embarrassed now and creeped out. Um, no, I but just thought no. it was funny because I, this has happened speaking, a few times. You said we've, speaking we've had people of who say that they. You said speaking of winning, and I thought you were going to transition into our last topic, and you, then you, you derailed ahead. it. You, you had go ahead. the perfect transition. Speaking well, of winning, you win a lot, and that's part of the reason you have a fan club. You're well, you're very innovative and you're inventive. Find a way. But we have to have an official fan club, and then no. you can sign pictures with a felt no. with a sharpie. No. I am not a 90s teen heartthrob, although I did spend an inordinate amount of time last night, like, scrolling back through Devin Sawa's Twitter. I had the hugest crush on him when I was, like, 10. I don't know who that is. I don't uh, need to know. It's okay. He's the guy from Casper. Let's move on. Um, so, speaking of winning, Brandon this week. Oh, um, yeah succeeded in he was a, on the podcast last he, week yes he was Brandon. um succeeded in a bc supreme court appeal of a traffic ticket conviction very interesting circumstances what had happened was the accused went to court he'd hired a lawyer kind of last minute which as you know happens a lot and his lawyer wasn't available his lawyer sent an agent another lawyer from his office or that he knew to appear um, on his behalf and to seek the adjournment, explaining that he was newly retained and, you know, needed some time to be prepared, etc. And the JJP in traffic court denied the adjournment, uh, said, nope, he had, you know, plenty of time. He knew about this date. He could have retained a lawyer leading up to all of this. Didn't. It's his own fault. Get your instructions. Be prepared to proceed. We're dealing with this. The other lawyer goes out tries to get instructions, takes some time. There's some comments made by the judicial justice that are ultimately characterized as less than judicial. And uh, the matter goes back before him and guilty pleas are entered because no proper instructions could be given and this person wasn't prepared to run a trial. Um, I wouldn't have entered a guilty plea. I would have gone back in. I would have said, I'm leaving now because I do not have instructions to run a trial today and you've refused the adjournment and I suppose the logical consequence would be a deemed conviction because he's not well, appearing anymore. The accused was there. Oh, was he? Yeah. Well, but I would still, tell the accused to leave in the same yeah, circumstance. He was, he was basically left with a, um, left with an option of Entering a guilty plea or leaving. Now, well, you could just stand he, there and not say anything. I refused to enter, enter a guilty plea. Had he left. I refused to have a trial. Had he left, he would have actually had more rights because the decision of the judicial justice finding him deemed not disputed could have been quickly resolved via an application at the registry. Maybe. And if that maybe. wasn't successful, then a, um, a judicial review of that 
but he pled guilty. Then he had to uh, file to withdraw his guilty plea. And Brandon was successful in arguing uh, that the guilty plea should be set aside and the matter should go back for a new hearing in BC Supreme Court on the basis of the fact that you, you know, can't just deny somebody an adjournment when their counsel isn't available. And to say that you can't get an adjournment because you've recently retained counsel is wrong. The court characterized it as a miscarriage of justice. And I, 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 I agree with that, that it's a miscarriage of justice. But again, I just don't, like, I don't see it consistent. I don't see consistency in decisions from the court. Um, well, I don't know of any BC Supreme Court judgments that have said otherwise. No, but I've seen decisions of this justice of the peace that have been similarly reasoned and um, with similar language and, you know, not received this sort of response from the court. So I'm glad for Brandon. I think it's appropriate. I don't think a person should be forced into a guilty plea just because their lawyer is unavailable. And, um, and also, you have the right to counsel. And if you don't Absolutely. get a lawyer right away, there's lots of reasons for that. You might not have <clears throat> got the notice of hearing in a timely fashion because you were out of the country. You might not have realized that there were lawyers that could help you with traffic court. I, I don't think you have to speculate about the reasons there. I think you have your right to counsel is fixed in law. It's in the charter. It's like one of the few things that's protected as a right yeah. You have a right to Literally a lawyer. Deny someone an adjournment on a first date. Well, even if it's a even if it's a later date, uh, you know they are accepting the delay. It's their delay, so it's not one that's likely to lead to it being thrown out for a Jordan um, no. argument. I, I just think that the right to counsel is so fundamental. Yeah, uh, we try and, and I mean, it's in the charter. Our, right? Like our entire like narrative about access to justice provincially right now, is to try to discourage people from having to be in the position of being a self-represented litigant if it can be avoided. It's so strange. And like, and yet in traffic court, <clears throat> this, there's this consistent approach of trying to compel people to be self-represented litigants because they want more time to hire a lawyer because they just hired a lawyer to allow counsel to be unprepared. And like, what's the answer? If I'm called by a client on Monday who has a traffic court matter on Wednesday, should I say, I'm sorry, you've left it too late, I can't assist you. Because if I go to court, I won't be ready to run your trial, I don't have adequate preparation time, and um, I won't get an adjournment. So you'd better just go there and be self-represented because no lawyer can reasonably assist you. And of course, I'm not going to say that to my clients, and I'm going to do everything I can to be prepared if they call me in that time frame. But like, the reality is that the court is, when they make those decisions, essentially telling people, we'd prefer you were a self-represented litigant than, like, 60 days of delay on a traffic ticket. I know. I know. I, I mean, I get that. I agree with that. Um, and obviously that's, <laughs> it's not appropriate to force somebody to enter a guilty plea, as I say, when they can have a lawyer and the lawyer's just not available. I mean, the... the well, he wasn't it's forced kind to of enter like, the guilty plea. He could have had a no, trial. No, I know, I know. But you, you can see yeah. the dilemma that the lawyer was in there who was appearing, whoever was appearing with him and the, and the litigant. Yeah. I'm um, not going to run a trial there without their lawyer. And, you know, I guess I'll just fold my tent. If this is the way that I'm going to be treated, I just give up. Um, and that's really unfortunate. The, the upsetting thing for me is that 
Okay, so you have a very busy schedule. You have the busiest schedule of any lawyer I've ever met in my life. There's a lot of demand for you as a lawyer. As a judge said to me recently, it's well known. It's, it is, um, it's notoriously known. Uh, and you are busy every day, solid. Um, and there, there doesn't seem to be the recognition sometimes in the court of how busy the lawyers are trying to help clients. It's not like people aren't showing uh, or are unavailable because they're like, because you're on vacation, okay? No, I'm on a beach in Barcelona, but I'm going to take this file that's for trial in two days while I'm in Barcelona. I know. Um, you don't take a lot of vacations, but nope. the, um, almost nothing. If I'm away, but, it's usually for conference. But it just feels like sometimes, like, I mean, you, you, sometimes it feels like we're being reprimanded for your schedule. Um, sometimes it feels like there's very little tolerance for the fact that you're that busy. Um, and, and that, that frustrates me too, because that too is an access to justice Well, that's issue. why I say this is now, here we are, I don't see that this decision is consistent with the, with the decisions that say, mm -hmm. well, Kyla, you got to move your schedule around whatever, and, or the client's got to get a new lawyer if they want to have a, yeah. you know. If you're, a, uh, you know, and I hesitate to the, use the word specialized because the Law Society frowns on it in marketing and they consider podcasts marketing, but if you have a very specialized practice, you focus on a small amount of things and try to do them as best you can. And, you know, my, I mean, I would like to be the best impaired driving lawyer in the country if I could be one day. And if I were charged with an offense, I would want my lawyer, if I could, have that to be the lawyer that's the best at what they do. I would depend on the circumstances. Lots of times I would like my lawyer because I like my lawyer. Sure. I wouldn't necessarily go to the person. If my life were on the line, I'd want the person, you know, when, when my People dog was sick. have confidence in their lawyer and I just would, I would go to somebody who I'm, I've got confidence in. When, I understand what you're Wrigley saying. When Wrigley was sick, I didn't take him to any vet. I told them I wanted the best. I got the best. I hear that. But, I, but you see what I'm saying. Like I, I, I find it, it's inconsistent that you are reprimanded for, um, you know, and, and your clients are put in this uncomfortable position uh, as a result of the fact that your schedule is so busy because they want to have you because you happen to be particularly good at what you're, what you do. Um, and yet then we've got this incredible statement about right to counsel in a traffic ticket case. Um, where this person's right to counsel on their traffic ticket is, uh, goes beyond any other considerations. Mm -hmm. So here you've got a judge in Brandon's case who's saying, you know, this is, this is a, 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 um, miscarriage, a of, miscarriage justice. of justice that the person's not entitled to have their lawyer and is pushed into the circumstances, um, on a traffic ticket, yet, you know, we're in provincial court and you've got judges saying, well, maybe they should get a different lawyer yeah. uh, if they, you know, because this could go beyond the Jordan timeline, Miss Lee, because you're so busy running uh -huh. a trial every day. Yeah, and there's not going to be a delay argument because it won't be successful because the delay is attributed to the defense. So I don't know why we're talking I about a non-issue. never know why this discussion it ever takes place. It never makes any sense. But you see what I'm saying now when I'm talking about the inconsistency. 
I now see what you're saying when you talk about the inconsistency and you have inspired me. So Good. that's a great note to end this podcast on. Do we have a, do we have a driver? Oh, a ridiculous driver of the week. You didn't week. even think of it. I didn't even think of it, you know. You want to look somebody up? I, Forget it. This could be the first week we don't have a, a ridiculous driver would, of the week. This would not be the first week. You know, back when I started practicing, um, actually not when I started practicing. Well, back when I started practicing, I noticed a rhythm to the year. And uh, I recognized that fairly early on. And, and um, when I set up my own practice, I noticed that Octobers were very slow. And that has not been the case in the last two or three years. So um, we have been crazy busy. So that's why we don't have a ridiculous driver. But you don't need one because this podcast was jam-packed with action fun and content and law and inspiration. Inspiration? I don't know. I don't know that I was that inspirational. I'm a little bit... I'm feeling the cynicism. Oh. No, no, no. You've inspired me. I have a plan. I've now crafted a master plan in my brain. Good for you. Well, we develop things here in our discussions. Mm -hmm. The only sad thing is that we used to have these discussions like in over, the office. over lunch or yeah. three days a week you know, or in the office. And now you're so damn busy with your schedule that goes 18 months into the future that well, this is it. I just have to book my 2022 vacations now. Shout out to my dad. My dad... Uh, told me that uh, on the podcast he doesn't like it when Kyla and I argue. We don't really argue, I don't think. I like a good healthy debate. I know you do. Um, and sometimes I try to trigger them. I know you do. <laughs> okay, so thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. Uh, if you want to reach out to either me or Paul for some inspiration or to join Paul's creepy fan club of one, uh, <laughs> or there's no, any there's no other. Paul Dor there's no fan club for me. Uh, I'll be your fan club. Uh, any then other? There is a creepy fan club. <laughs> yeah, there is right. Um, this is gross. Uh, you can contact us vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law, hopefully featuring. Eric McGracken.